I'll have you know, no one offered me an instrument. Um, of course, I just, I, I do want to say that was wondrous. Um, thank you. Thank you, Cathedral Choir, Dr. Masters, Nicole, Michael. Thank you all. Wow. I have been following, as I am guessing many of you have, uh, the conflict in the Middle East. Negotiations around a continued ceasefire collapsed late this past week, and fighting has resumed. And the suffering is too much to bear. It's impossible for me to begin to wrap my mind around what is happening on the other side of the world. It's a, it's a situation with, with what feels to me like a lot of people losing on both sides. Every time I read another story, whether it's of a family who is, is praying for the return of an abducted loved one in Israel, or of the numerous displaced Palestinians and lack of resources there, my heart aches, my body aches, my stomach aches. And at the same time, I, I've had this sense over these many last weeks that I am somehow supposed to choose a side. I don't know if you're experiencing that at all. Or, 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 or maybe you identify with, with one of the struggles. The, the reality is, is it's just not black and white. And, and I don't believe that God is choosing a side here. I believe that the violence, the suffering inflicted on both sides breaks the heart of God. As God seeks the reconciliation and redemption of the entire world, of all people. There's just no right choice here. It's a bunch of bad options. And the situation is deeply complex. There are so many pieces to this, both at the, the macro level and at the micro level. I think to pretend that I even have all of the information to make an informed Choice would be, would be pretending. One note I do want to share is that one of our ministry partners, Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, has partners there that are on the ground seeking to provide humanitarian aid to all of those who are suffering in the region. And we will continue to support them. But this is the world we live in, one that is messy, one that is imperfect, when, where we are called daily to make imperfect decisions in an imperfect world with imperfect information. And that's actually a part of the tension that we experience in this Advent season. There is, for many of us, this desire as we 
As we turn the page on Thanksgiving, to rush to Christmas, to go to church, to hear joy to the world, but we are reminded in the liturgy of the church that we are not there yet. In this season of Advent, we sit in between. We remember and reflect on what God has done, that Jesus Christ has entered the world, and yet that we still live in a broken and hurting world, that we're still awaiting God to do what God has promised God is going to do in redeeming and restoring all things. We don't have to look to the other side of the world to understand that the world is still broken. We simply have to look in our own lives. But friends, the good news is that God plans, God promises redemption for all things. And our scripture for today has something to say about all of this. I want to invite you to open up the Bibles that you've brought with you from home or your pew Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And we're in chapter 1, beginning at verse 3 and going through verse 9. And, and, and like the last couple of weeks, we're reading from one of Paul's letters to one of the early churches. And like last week, we're reading from the introductory paragraph of the letter. In, in the introduction here in 1 Corinthians, it serves to prepare the ground for material that, that Paul will seek to address in the body of his letter. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul, beginning at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, like most of his letters, are, are written to churches that are experiencing some kind of conflict or conflicts. In this case, it's the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth, for many, many generations, had been an incredibly prosperous city, given its location in the Isthmus of Greece. You see, located here in the Isthmus of Corinth, they controlled two ports, one on either side. And so ships looking to avoid needing to sail around the dangerous southern Peloponnesian Peninsula would offload their goods on one side of the isthmus and then carry them over land and load them onto another ship on their way to Asia. This prosperity was interrupted in about 150 BCE when the city was conquered by the Roman Empire and the city was razed. The buildings torn down and the city's residents were either killed or enslaved. And the city more or less laid abandoned. 
for about 100 years until Julius Caesar chose to colonize it, just a couple of generations before Paul's letter to the church in Corinth we read from today. And this city was colonized largely with freed slaves. It was a place of incredible social and economic opportunity. It was one of the few places that freed slaves could hold political office. It was a place of opportunity where upward mobility was broadly available to all people. And in this way, Corinth was not so different from the United States, a place that for the last couple of hundred years has stood as a destination for those seeking a better life, a place, although far from perfect, that held opportunities for people not available to them elsewhere. Now, one of the sources of conflict that Paul seeks to address in this letter to the Corinthians was that there were church members who were, who were boastful of the spiritual gifts they had received. For example, Paul, you may have heard, he mentions here special knowledge that some of them felt they possessed. And, and we can't say precisely what that was, but we certainly know people who project an air of knowing, don't we? And in the introduction to the letter, Paul affirms these gifts. He says these gifts are a good thing. But he reminds them that these gifts also come from God, so they cannot be a source of pride. As they did not originate with the Corinthians themselves, these gifts are, are not the result or a product of their own innate spirituality, but rather they have been given freely to them by God. In our letter, Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him in speech and knowledge of every kind. And then Paul calls them together, reminding them that they are not yet finished products that they too, they're awaiting the revealing of Jesus Christ and as they wait, they're to be bound together in their incompleteness into fellowship with one another. Paul reminds them that the church, the community of faith is, is a part of God's plan, a part of what God is doing and a part of how God will bring about the redemption and restoration of all things. So, what might Paul Say to us now. The church in America, the church in Fort Lauderdale. What might Paul say to us? I think that Paul might say the very same thing. I'm not so sure that he'd change a word. Each of you in here, each of us in here, we've been given these very specific gifts that were not of our choosing. Perhaps we have worked to develop them, but that's not a reason for pride or boasting. It simply means that we've been good stewards of the resources and things that God has given us. And God isn't finished with us yet. Amen? Thank goodness. There is more to learn, that there is more to know. 
Just as Paul reminds them that they are not finished, that they are awaiting Christ's revealing, we are reminded every Advent that we are a people in waiting, a church in waiting, that we have yet to put all of the pieces together, that we don't know everything. In just a moment, our AV team is going to put a a video up here on the screen, and I want to invite you to watch it. I want to invite you to follow the instructions that you'll see there on the screen, and if it's something that you've seen before, I'd invite you to allow your neighbor to experience that. And so if you'll bring those lights down and then start our video. Thank you. That's, that's good. We purchased it. We did all the copyright stuff. We're, we're legit. <laughs> How many of you were familiar with this? How many of you had seen this before? Who's bold enough to admit that they missed the gorilla? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> About the same percentage at the 930 service as well, so don't feel bad. This is a popularly quoted and referenced psychological experiment that's called the invisible gorilla. It was first conducted and made famous by these two that were named Christopher Shabri and Daniel Simons at Harvard University. And, and the video on YouTube now has nearly 30 million views. And, and for those at, at home who perhaps missed it, I'll just describe it. We, we watched as, as a team of, of white, uh, team with white shirts and black shirts passed a basketball back and forth, and we were asked to count uh, how many passes that those in white shirts made. And in the midst, a person dressed as a gorilla walks onto the screen and then off of it. In repeating this experiment over and over, what Shabri and Simons observed was that about 50% of people who watch the video miss the gorilla. They don't ever notice that the gorilla was there. The experiment demonstrates two things about us as humans. We are missing a lot of what's going on around us. And secondly, and perhaps most importantly, we have no idea how much we're missing because we're missing it. 
Friends, we go about our day-to-day so focused on the, on the tasks at hand, those things that, that we believe are important to us, that we are missing what is happening around us, and we have no idea we're missing it. Friends, what do you not yet know or understand about who God is, the world around you, or God's design for you? What do you not yet know or understand about who God is, the world around you, and God's design for you? The question is flawed, right? You can't possibly know yet what you don't know. But we can embrace the fact that there's a whole lot we don't know and no idea how much. So my question for us is, can we approach our faith together with this kind of open-handed humility? A kind of humility that binds us together rather than pushes us apart with a kind of open-handed humility that draws us closer to one another in our collective ignorance. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul expresses his gratitude for, for who they are and he seeks to draw them forward in becoming the church and people God has created them to be as they wait for Christ's revealing. Friends, I am grateful for who we are. And I am grateful that God is drawing us forward. In the same way, we do not arrive until that day. This Advent is a season of waiting. It is a call to to hold on loosely to our own understandings about the world, to hold on loosely to our own theological convictions, understandings, and insights. Not because God is uncertain, but rather because our own understanding is imperfect. Hear that again. Let us hold on loosely to our own theological convictions about who God is, not because God is uncertain, but rather because our understanding is imperfect. In Advent, we are reminded that God is continuing to reveal God's self. How will we be open to it? Friends, this Advent, may Christ be born anew in each of us. Enlarging our understanding, increasing our participation in the body of Christ, and drawing us closer to becoming the community and people that God intends. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And it is with humility that we approach this table together, that we are each invited to participate in the feast that God prepares and presents to us. And so this is not a Presbyterian table, but a table that is open and welcome to all who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, let's pray. It is right in our joy, Creator God, to give you thanks and praise. For you have given life to every living thing and made us in your image. 
In the fullness of time, you sent your Son to be Emmanuel, God with us. He was born to dwell among us, full of grace and truth, and in him we have seen your glory. Lavished with gifts from the Magi, he gave his life for others. And in his death on the cross, he overcame death. Rising from the tomb, he raised us to eternal life and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon these gifts of bread and juice, that the bread that we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. In this feast, make us one with you and with each other. Inflame us with the Spirit, that we may be united in ministry in every place. We pray in the triune name of God. Amen. Friends, on the night of his arrest, Jesus took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and said, this bread is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, every time we eat this bread or drink from this cup, we do declare the Lord's death until he comes again. I invite you to open your communion kits and partake in the elements. Friends, the feast of God for the people of God.